Hey, we've got a simple and yet we think very valuable episode for you all today. I talked to five different therapists asking them all what's three things, arguably the most important three things to take into consideration and act on as we enter the new year. So most of the discussions I want to tell you ahead of time, we just drop right into mental health talk and there's very little getting to know them sort of conversation as the focus for these therapists was sharing what they believe can be very helpful to all. But we did put a little bit of information about all five in the show notes, as well as the very three things each one shared if you want to reference back. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. Since the pandemic, I feel like I've seen such an uptick in people older coming into therapy and especially men. I've never seen so many men reach out. Technology can support a lifestyle at a pace that our souls, our brains, our physiology is not designed to keep up with. Most people today are struggling with an insecure self. They don't, they don't like themselves, they don't feel good about themselves, so they're pretty hard on themselves. That's when I see the depression really, really start, and then it builds and builds, and it's at record levels, I will say right now, I've had more suicides than I've ever kind of all around me than I've ever experienced as a person and as a therapist. I always say strong people ask for help. So I feel like I'm very strong in that that sense. (laughs) I want to always ask for help. Well, I haven't said this to the rest of the therapists, and I should have, so I'll say it to you, and it applies to all of them. Thank you for taking care of people. It's a tough job, but I don't know where I'd be without my therapist. I appreciate what all of y'all do. and Thanks so much for saying that and seeing it. It actually it matters a lot. I appreciate that. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that one I'm super embarrassed about. <laughs> do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As, a, as an individual or as, yeah, a as, as a person? No, I like you. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. Have you noticed any difference with the pandemic and all of that as far as mental health? Because, I, you know, we hear, we see the news and the headlines that mental health has taken a big hit, you know, in Mm -hmm. these last five years or so. But in such a good way to me, you know, because I feel like it's just brought all the stuff that was already there for people to the surface. Yeah. And so people are more open to it now. So, yeah, we're as therapists, I think we're busier than we've ever been. Gosh. More to me than a crisis, you know? Yeah. Sometimes people see it that way, but I think all the stuff is already there. It's just out there now. No, that's you know? that's a really good point. Since the pandemic, I feel like I've seen such an uptick in people older coming into therapy. Nice. And especially men. I've never seen so many men reach out, which I love. So it's it's been really good. Is there somewhat of a common thread as far as the crux of what they're reaching out for? Or it's just all over the map? Yeah, not necessarily, but again, more of an openness to it. A lot of the men and definitely a lot of the older um, people I see when I say older, upper 50s, 60s, but their kids are encouraging them. So it's definitely coming from outside. Ah. You know, hey, why don't you try this? Or, you know, think about talking to somebody and people are more open. Right. So you, you and I, we've known each other for a very long time. For the, for the most part, shared church family and all of that. Now, just full throttle in the mental health profession. What is your, what's your take or what's your level of comfort right now with where the church is at as a whole when it comes to mental health? Are you encouraged or are you very discouraged? Maybe somewhere in the middle. I see a lot of people of all of all walks and definitely up stages of faith or no faith at all, but a lot of wounded people from the church. It's part of what I want to talk about today too, is I feel like what I what I want to talk about is so anti maybe what people were taught about focusing on themselves or loving themselves is such a and not that I think the church actually discourages that, but I think that was the message for so long. You put other people first, yourself is last. Right. Think of yourself as less, you know? Well, let's let's get right into that. And I, I can certainly okay. certainly relate to that. It's it's been one of the more recent 
things that I've learned because exactly what you said, because we're just taught selflessness, selflessness, selflessness. We were never taught you can't be selfless in a healthy way unless you take care of yourself. Self-care is not selfish. So we'll we'll start wherever you want to start. If people can make three adjustments this year, what would you say are the three that would help them out? Loving yourself is number one. I know that sounds cliche and it's almost too simple. There's a book called Loving Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. And it was written by a guy who was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) How cheesy can you get loving yourself? Especially I do a lot of trauma work. It is the most healing aspect of it. When you truly approach yourself with compassion and curiosity. And then that leads to the second, which then helps you to love others better because you can approach people with that compassion and curiosity. Yeah. Well, and, and let then, me, and let me stop yeah. you there too. Like how, how close can that look or how, what's the possibilities there with it being similar to how you love someone else? And obviously we're not talking romantic love, but you and I, I mean, you and I are friends. We're, we're fond of each other. So can your feelings towards yourself turn into like a fondness? Mm-hmm. I know that sounds silly, but I think it's tricky territory for so many people. Best case scenario, what can that look like as far as loving yourself? The approach I use is called internal family systems, IFS for short. And so it's the whole idea that we have multiplicity of mind, that we have parts of ourselves that are wounded and hold all the pain. Then we have parts of ourselves that manage day-to-day life and even parts that go to more extremes of trying to protect us. And the idea is that there's no bad parts, just parts of us that have been forced to do things that aren't good. Gotcha. We are all born with a core self, capital S self, and people of faith can even refer to it as a spirit-led self, just a light within us that's always been there and that holds that compassion and curiosity, confidence, creativity. It's eight words that start with C, clarity, courage, calm, connectingness. So when we are in our self energy, so therapists can, and pastors are very similar. They like to have words that all start with the same letter. Awesome. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you. You have to tell me what yours are. <laughs> but yeah, when we when we can approach ourselves or other people with that, and we all have experienced aspects of that core self energy. You know, when you're maybe in prayer, you feel very calm and at peace, or when you're having a great conversation with a friend or someone you love, or some people with their animals, you know, you feel this calm and that's self-energy. And so when we notice anything outside of that, like anxiety, depression, anything, we can approach that in us as if it's a part of us that's holding this anxiety or depression and be curious about it. So I notice you, I feel this anxiety. What do you want me to know? What are you trying to tell me? And then just listen, and we start to actually hear from within what all this stuff is that we're experiencing. Yeah, my my therapist has used that phrasing a lot as far as just being curious, as far as why'd you do that? Why'd you think that? And I think that a lot of Christians would be uneasy with that because of the whole, yeah, but that's just, that's just wrong. You have to, you know, put, put that to rest, kill it, you know, deny your flesh and all that. But I can't, how you just described that, I can't think of uh, a more Jesus-y way of approaching it. Like, imagine if, if <laughs> this is really silly, but imagine if Jesus was your therapist and you're telling mm-hmm. him this stuff, I could totally imagine Jesus being like, well, think about why. Like, why do you think that you did that? Like, let's let's talk mm-hmm. about the the whys, because at the end of the day, I believe God is after things that are healthy for us and against things that are unhealthy for us because God loves us. End of story. <laughs> End of story. Yep. There's actually a story. Now, I wasn't prepared for this, but uh, Cain and Abel in the Bible, all the way back to then, There's if you look at the conversation God has with, it's Cain, right? He was one doing bad. Yeah. So he was having a conversation with him and he talks to him like that. It's so much compassion and almost getting him to look look inside. Like, yeah. so why are you doing this? Where is this coming from? I was like, see, he, he knows. Yeah. And that was creating. a murderer, Jen. That was a murderer. <laughs> exactly. All right. So loving yourself and then that naturally moves on to loving others, which you would agree is going to be done a lot more effectively if you get step one, right? Right. Because most of the time we're seeing parts, protector parts of ourselves reacting to other people's protector parts. That's where you see all the conflict and we have that inner conflict as well. But when you come at people like that, a lot of times it's just protector against protector. 
But if you can have some of that self-energy where you notice someone's maybe coming at you with some aggression or whatever, and you kind of just work with yourself, say, okay, let's just be curious with this person right now. I can tell that you're really angry right now. Where's it coming from? Tell me about it. You know, just being curious with someone else is going to help them to like ease right away. Yeah, because you don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that allows you not to just have this person in a in a right or wrong category. And they very well may be wrong. They they very well may not be, but sure. that's not what's most important is the is the deeper stuff of of why. Yeah. Yeah, cuz you'd be amazed what you find out about somebody, you know, right. when you realize like their hurt is they're coming from a hurt place. Right. Chip says and and he'll he'll be on this episode and you know, he says that everybody's doing the best they can. Uh, yeah. with what they have. And sometimes I don't like that because it's like, I want to be justifiably angry at this person, but I, yeah. I love how it makes me step back and be like, oh, well, think of all the, all your hangups, Joey, all of your weaknesses, all the ways that you mess up. Is there any explanation for that stuff? And I'd say, yeah. I mean, some of it's probably just stupidity, but a lot of it has to do with the first 44 years of my life, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's there for a reason. Right. Just, I think there's parts of us that need to be able to tell their story. You know, we all carry pain, so we just got to be able to let it speak. Yep. What would be uh, a third one? What I get from that is that if I can love myself well, ultimately loving others well, then I can actually receive God's love for real. You know, until I truly have learned to love myself and accept myself. I could not really receive God's love. I felt like I was constantly battling for it and just believed I didn't deserve it. And is that because when when you heard Jesus loves you or God loves you, you didn't really have an accurate depiction of what that looks like? Right. It felt so conditional just because that's what you experience in life. You experience it from other people. And definitely when, within myself, the message was, well, you can be loved if you're good enough or if you do enough or, you know. I love it. It will sound probably counterintuitive. You're saying that from a mental health perspective, your your first step is learning how to love yourself. And if, mm-hmm. if you learn how to do that, you learn how to love others well, and then you really can pick up on how God loves us too. And that's, wow, yeah. that's cool. We weren't taught that in Sunday school, were we? <laughs> nope. I, I don't know about you, but I was taught the joy, like it's Jesus, others, then yourself. Right. Right. Let's flip that. It doesn't put us above him, you know? Nothing's right. greater than him. It's just in order to get to him or to receive his love, we got to do it the other yeah. way. Pastor Chip, good to have you here. I want to ask you, because we've talked a lot about this off air, the climate that we live in, what would you say is one or multiple things characteristically about culture that we need to really keep an eye on and how it affects people's well-being? My answer would almost be the same for both questions. What is one of the biggest things we need to keep an eye on going into next year? And then what's a cultural trend? I think I could but answer But you are going to give me three because I'm OCD. You're going to give me okay. three different things. All right. All right. I can do that, Joey. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> the big thing to me, Joey, is slow down. Slow the you-know-what down. I mean, literally, I've taught on this and in, in, in closed with practical steps and people look at me weird. I say, consciously, intentionally, make yourself walk slower. Catch yourself in a moment and make yourself talk slower. You're sitting at a meal alone or with other people. Make yourself eat slower. In other words, it's kind of a backward way of talking about mindfulness. Part of what gets us in trouble is we lived in, we live in this revved up state and we, we've lost the capacity to be bored. We don't know how to do nothing anymore. So what that means is we fill every crack and crevice of our life and we're we're self-stressing and then we overreact to everything. We react disproportionately to everything going on around us and we feed into this cycle of anger and everybody's oppositional, like everybody's like dangerous, everybody's adversarial. And we're having this kind of reaction because we weren't meant to be going such full throttle paces. We're meant to be rhythmic for one thing. Yes to your question. Like I, something I read recently, and I probably can't say it as eloquently as the, the person did, but technology has outpaced humanity's ability to keep up with it. 
So technology can help us, in, in quotes, by the way, can, can support a lifestyle at a pace that our souls, our brains, our physiology is not designed to keep up with. I'm a, I'm a big believer in this. Progress isn't progress unless it's moving us toward a desirable objective. If it's not moving us toward a desirable objective, then it's just busyness, activity, raising a cloud of dust, but it's not necessarily progress. We're quick to label almost anything happens as progress. We don't slow down long enough to think through, did this really move us toward something that matters and makes a difference in the quality of our lives? In the quantity of our lives, because that's the other side of being in a hurry all the time. You live adrenalized, and adrenaline is caustic to three primary systems, your pain management system, your mental uh, emotional management system, and your um, disease fighting. Living in this revved up place, number one, and then unabated. You know, we talk about Sabbath and sabbatical. Basically, God built a seven-day rhythm into creation. We're arrogant enough to believe that we don't have to live by the laws of nature. We we can supersede them. And we're paying for it with, you know, fewer days, uh, less life in those days. Uh, you know, like we talk about, oh, why is the rhetoric so animated and so ugly? Well, I mean, number one, I would say is because we're all living in such a hurry that we don't really have time to think for ourselves. Number two, everybody's lying to us on every side of every issue. Now, it doesn't mean every single person out there is lying, but the overall safe place to land is anything you hear is suspect. It's at least slanted in a way that's favorable to whatever the point the person is trying to make, if not outright unfactual. Gotcha. So number one, slow down. Number two, everyone's lying. (laughs) That's right. Uh, number two would be figure out what you want and ask for it. And I mean, uh, Mark 10, 46 to 52, Jesus, blind Bartimaeus, you know, the story is just amazing. The bottom line is Jesus calls a blind beggar over and here's a blind beggar standing in front of Jesus. And Jesus asks the blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? And I've just learned over the years in my own life and the people I work with, it takes faith and courage to admit you want something. Because the minute you admit you want it, you can be hurt and disappointed by not getting it. But here's what I can pretty much guarantee you. If you don't admit you want it, the chances, likelihood, statistical, you know, likelihood of you getting it go down pretty precipitously. So there's something that changes inside of us when we have the courage and faith to say, I want a great marriage. I want to be healthier. I want to learn how to manage my emotions better. And and again, there's brain things that come into play. There's this part of your brain called the reticular activating system. But there's a part of your brain that once you tell it what you want, it just says, okay. And then it just starts watching, looking, and ordering things to get you what you said you wanted. You know, I want a certain car of this color in this year span. Well, for the next week, all you see is cars of that color. And because your brain, all you did was say, I want blank. And your brain just subconsciously starts looking for that for you. Now put that back into number one about slowing down. When you live in this rushed, scared, adversarial place, guess what your brain's always looking for? Enemies. Why did he say that way? What did he mean by that? Oh, he's such an idiot to think that way. Our brain looks for what we tell it to look for. And one of the ways we tell our brain what to look for is by sitting down, slowing down, reflecting. What do I want next year? The sad thing, Joey, is it looks painful and costly, but I would say almost always you get back way more than you put in. Uh, In chemistry, there's this thing called activation energy, and it's the amount of energy it takes to initiate a chemical reaction. Like, imagine if I was holding a match in my hand. The match is never going to go off. If I strike the match, which is applying what you would call activation energy, I get way more energy back than I put in. But I've got to strike the match. And a lot of change processes, growth processes, progress processes, our activation energy, you're just behind the hill a little bit, but it's way deeper on the other side than the side you're on. And so you, you, you have to climb, let's just for sake of making a point, you have to climb 20 yards, but on the other side, the decline is 150. You invest 20 yards of effort to get to the top of the hill, and then you ride that change down the other side. 
And that's really what working on changing your life can be like. When you pick a thing, work on it, it bears fruit in that specific area, but then it has unintended, hopefully good ones, unintended and unseen consequences in all kinds of other areas of your life. Any change has the potential to affect all kinds of other changes. And um, But yes, there's almost no change you can in, in, embark on that's not going to feel at least momentarily, temporarily uncomfortable. Number three is less is more, meaning don't like you sit down what I'm saying, decide what you want. First of all, you slow down, create the habit of reflecting. You sit down with your heart and with God and answer Jesus's question. What do you want me to do for you? And then the next thing is have fun with it. Make a list of, you know, 150 things. Not really. Please don't do that. Here's my point. No matter how big your list is, come back to three. And then out of the three, pick one. Like I love Philippians 3, this phrase, this one thing I do. This one thing I do. So you pick one thing. You know what? I want to slow down next year. So then you say, okay, what's one thing I could do on a regular basis that would both remind me and empower me and develop the habit of slowing down? So you think about what that is. Uh, It might be limit your social media to an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. Would you say less is more because it's a higher potential of actually doing what you're setting out to do? Like if you put if you make a list of like 10 things, probably going to be overwhelmed and not really follow through. Yeah. If if you make a list of 10 things, you're kidding yourself. You don't really want to change. No, I don't mean consciously, but subconsciously, you're not really committing to change because the mind can't manage that many objectives. It's just not designed to do that. And I believe three is a good number, but I believe one is the magic number. I I would still say I'm not what you would call a classically disciplined person, but I'm smart enough to recognize that and I'm hungry enough to realize that what motivates me is when I want something You're not going to create change in your life until it hurts worse to stay the way you are. In other words, you're not going to pursue change unless staying the way you are is worse than the cost of that change. So one of the ways to do that is figure out something you want and build the appetite for that. You know, way back in the day, you know, I'm not very disciplined. I'd be like, well, what do I want? You know what? I want to know God. I want to live a life that uh, exhibits the fruit of knowing God. And I realize there's one thing, one thing I could do that would move me in that direction. And that was to pray. So I'd go into every day saying, you have one thing to do today. One, one thing to do today. And truthfully, Joey, as dumb as this sounds, after I'd have a, a, a my hour of prayer, because back then it would be an hour, I'd, I'd say this, okay, I'm done. Good day. I did what I was supposed to do. Now, because of it being a strategically chosen action, praying, it made me a better version of myself, made me more peaceful, made me more infused with vision. And guess what? I got other stuff done more consistently than ever before in my life. But I only set out to get one thing done. For some people out there, it might be just get a good night's sleep. So what do you say? Okay, lights out 10 o'clock. How often? Every night. Maybe you give yourself one night to watch a movie or something. But just think about it. That person lights out every night at 10 o'clock. The rest of the day, they don't worry about it. I got one thing. I'm going to turn the lights out at 10 o'clock. Guess what? You start getting seven, seven and a half, eight hours sleep. You start feeling better, thinking better, acting better. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow. I've accomplished some of the other things on my list without even trying. So if you're going to make a New Year's resolution, make one of them. Just one. Heck yeah. Pastor Chip, thank you so much. Good stuff. Glad to be here. Well, Lynn, good to have you. You know, I was thinking with the holidays and everything, and I would imagine every therapist probably handles this differently, but just like, you know, on Christmas Day, it's not like all of a sudden everyone doesn't have to go to the emergency room or EMSs are still needed. I would say the same thing with mental health. Someone could have a mental health crisis on Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's. How do you handle that or how do therapists handle that in general? Because you guys need a life too. Right. I hear that. And, And I'm so glad that you've asked this because I think many people are reluctant to ask for help on that 
you know, Christmas Day or, you know, Christmas Eve or New Year's or, you know, during the Hanukkah season, you know, oh, my therapist has a family. And I just really try to encourage people to say that therapists know that we're good at setting boundaries for ourselves so that we'll get our family time in, but they really need to reach out during those times. Uh, It is a very emotionally raw period of the year. Um, Many things can get triggered, old losses that you think you've resolved suddenly reappear. And so if you really are starting to feel that you're in a crisis situation, I encourage people to, to yes, to reach out to that therapist or to someone, to some services to ask for help. Um, You have to trust that the therapist is going to know how to set boundaries. Do you think that that's common amongst therapists? I hope so. I hope that's the approach that we're encouraging people. And there are other resources, you know, with my clients, I really talk to them about the other resources that I'm I'm not available because I can't be available 24-7. If someone said, Lynn, I need to focus on a few things heading into 2023, what are the three things that I should focus on? I'm so excited that you're asking this question too, because I'm very passionate about the three things that I'm going to tell you about, because I do these things and I, I've found that they've made a, a, a change in my own life. And one is going to sound a little counter in that the emotion of regret. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that emotion and have really thought of it about as an emotion. You know, we think of happy and sad and angry, but regret. And so A different take, and a colleague of mine had done some um, research around this, and the idea that, you know, regret kind of falls into the categories of things that we hope that we 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 think we should have done and things that we shouldn't have done. You know, so that terrible argument that we had with our friend and we regret, you know, having said the things that we said, or gosh, I really regret that I didn't go to college, you know, and so I carry that regret around with me. So in this research, they talked about we've had it all wrong, but we say we should aim for a regret-free life, right? Everybody says, I'm not going to have any regrets at the end of my life. Well, that's almost impossible because we're human and we're going to do things and we're going to have that argument with our friend. So, The research really indicates rather than saying, let's just try not to have a regret-free life, let's lean into those regrets and try to learn from them. So that if I think about that argument that I had with my friend, you know, is there some way that I can reconcile that? Can I write a letter? Can I pick up the phone and call? If not, perhaps I'm going, no, I've, I've reached out they're not willing, then how do I go about forgiving myself for those things, for those words that I said, that unkindness? The the whole thought about not walking around with this heavy regret is that do we learn something that I also take that, you know, other friendships, I'm going to be mindful of nurturing those and dealing with my anger in a different way. The other thing like, oh, I regret not going to college. And so perhaps we can't sign up for college courses at this point. But can we say, what is that longing? Is there something that I'm longing for carrying that regret around? Perhaps I do need to look at some new things I can add to my life. Maybe there's something new that I want to pursue in the way of learning. Again, learning and leaning into that regret is one thing that I'm trying to do of looking into, you know, to say I should have, you know, that kind of thing only leads us to a place of guilt. And for me, guilt is about, again, forgiveness of self. And so how do we move forward from that? So I bet you a lot of people who say, I don't want to live with regrets. They're basically just putting it in the in the back yes. part of their minds and it's always yes. there they think that they're not living with regret but they're you're right. saying you need to meet it head on like if you really want to live without regrets you need to meet it head on and absolutely it. yeah yeah i would say this too joy is that this time of year you know many people are dealing with great loss you know loss from the past that sort of thing and so the question comes to what if there's something unresolved that creates regret for me about someone who's no longer living How, what are I do. And many people have that, you know, they become estranged from a family member and suddenly that family member is no longer physically here. You know, what do I do? And I think, again, it's about that idea that 
I can resolve that by forgiving myself, you know, going through the process, perhaps, you know, looking at what created that estrangement. Am I doing that with other people in my life? So again, that idea of learning from that rather than feeling stuck in that heavy sense of regret. My gosh. I can't believe I get to hear two more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the the two two others. There's a professor at Yale, Dr. Lori Santos, and she has a course at Yale called The Science of Well-Being, the most popular course ever at Yale, which tells you something about this pursuit of happiness and all of us wanting happiness. But she does a little exercise in the beginning of her course that she makes all of her students do, and it's called savoring. And what she says is there are these moments throughout our day, right? These little moments that are amazing. We just take them for granted. She asks that you each day try to find one of those. That could be seeing a beautiful cloud in the sky, or it could be a little kid laughing or a dog jumping on you, whatever, something that lifts your mood during the day and to, to be very mindful of it, but not only just to be mindful of it, but to try to extend it. And she talks about extending it by either sharing it with someone and saying, gosh, I saw the most amazing thing today. Let me tell you about it. Taking a picture of it. And so you're extending that savoring moment, but you want to have a savoring moment each day. And the whole idea is that we're building these up in our brain, right? So there are these positive moments. And I often tell the story of there was a day I was here. I was really, really busy at my desk. I hadn't eaten. I hadn't done anything. You know, all those days where even as a therapist that we're telling everybody be mindful in the moment, I was two in my head. Run over across the street um, to the grocery to grab something to eat, grab something. I'm going to bring it back to my desk and work. I'm about to get in my car where there's a man that goes, ma'am, ma'am. I think I don't have time for this. Who is this person? I yeah. turn around and there's this man and he has this branch of a bush that has this beautiful little flower on it. He hands it to me. And I think I'm sure he wants money. You can see where I am <laughs> in my head. I'm right. not just like, oh, I don't have time for this. And I reach into the car to grab my purse to get some money out to give him. I turn around and he's gone. And all of a sudden I thought, this is going to be your savoring moment because this man comes up to you and does this very sweet, kind act. It brings you back into the moment, not at your desk, not answering calls, but in just that kind of kindness of a stranger moment. And you have this beautiful little flower. I'm going to savor this flower. I put it out in the lobby of my office. All through the day, clients came in and said, that is such a pretty little flower (laughs) out of that pause. And, And when I tell that story, I feel the uplift in mood, just like I did that afternoon when I was thinking about it. Those are those savory moments that we want to really think about, pay attention to, be mindful of, and store away in that brain. Because there will be those days where I need that uplift in mood, where I need to think about that act of kindness in darker times. So savoring, I would really encourage people to try to establish that routine of finding something every day, one little something. I've established that and been doing it for about two years. And I have to say at the end of the day, if I've not done my savoring, I miss it. And I'm I'm looking Uh, around my room trying to find something to (laughs) savor. So It sounds like if you do this regularly and for the long haul, you're you're changing your brain chemistry. It kind of sounds like what you're saying. It is. And that's yeah. the whole point of all of these things is that right. we're challenging those old ways of thinking. We're storing things in that brain. You know, the brain is amazing. I mean, it's it keeps us alive and kicking is their its main function. We're going to store away the criticism and the times we feel that we failed and all those. Those are the hard ones to let go of. We need to also be feeding that brain, these savoring moments. I had a little kid that I taught it to, and I said, did you do your savoring this week? And he said, "Miss Harrison, we had nachos in the lunchroom, and I stopped when I walked in, and I thought about all of that cheese and all of that wonderfulness, <laughs> and that was my savoring moment, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. So, yeah, That's awesome, especially the, the age that my kids are at like I if I'm not careful I can be consumed with worry and whether I'm yes. you know being a good dad and and miss out on 
all the beauty that's happening right in front of my face. So absolutely yeah. lean into regret, savor, and so I was watching a TED talk and it was a photographer who did still life photography and slow motion, you know, photography and that sort of thing. He said he made this very profound statement. He said, I discovered that what we fall in love with, we protect. So he said, I now am a big one about climate change and about the environment because I fell in love with everything as a part of that. And so we know that here in you know South Carolina that there are many folks who protect the sea turtles. You know, they fell in love with sea turtles and they usher them back to the sea, you know, when they're coming out of their shells. And so I started thinking about that TED Talk and I thought, what if we fell in love with ourselves, not in some narcissistic way, not in some self-absorbed way or selfish way, but we really fell in love with ourselves to the point that we saw our worth and our value to the point that we protect ourselves, right? Like if we can protect sea turtles, we should be able to protect ourselves. And so I thought, how do you do that? Because we always say, love yourself, put yourself first. But this idea of really falling in love with yourself. We know love, you know, love and grief are so much alike. They kind of have their way with us, right? I mean, they're they're these powerful energies. So I've talked with my clients about that, that if we fall in love with ourselves to the point that we protect ourselves, we protect ourselves from that critical voice that's in our head. We protect ourselves from that person that's always telling us that we're not good enough or that we're less than. You know, some of the the ugliness out in the world that can kind of seep into our thinking all the time. It's not that we don't see that we have our weaknesses. We're human and we all have that, but we see ourselves in a realistic way. We try to be the best person we can be and we're going to fail miserably some days. And But if we really are in love with ourselves, we'll always hang on to that sense of worth, you know, and value and that idea of that my responsibility is loving my myself to the point of protecting myself. It seems so easy, right? I think it's one of the hardest things. There's so much in our culture right now that kind of does say that we're not enough. You know, the comparison to other people uh, who are doing oh so much better than we do according to Facebook or you know Instagram. However, if we can fall in love with ourselves in a healthy way that can lead to our greater happiness and wholeness. Yeah. And it sounds like in in order to protect yourself, you have to be proactive with yes. what comes into your brain and and yes. be, be cognizant of it. And if there's something that comes in that is, you know, no good, then do something about it and protect yourself. Yes. There's so many of us that walk around with that critical voice, you know, that we got early on and it's a hard one to quiet. And, you know, we talk about nurturing a compassionate voice, but that can be challenging as well because that critical voices can be so powerful. So this idea of being aware of my love of self, of saying I can forgive myself for things, you know, that yes, when I make that mistake or when I fail miserably, that I can always give that kind of forgiveness, that grace with self that becomes so important. Lynn, that was awesome. (laughs) I feel like I'm getting free therapy from five different therapists. (laughs) Good. I'm so glad. I mean, I'm so glad that you're doing this. I think that we have a wonderful community of therapists out there. And I'm so glad that more and more people are reaching out and asking for help with things. I always say strong people ask for help. So I feel like I'm very strong in that that sense. I want to always ask for help if I need. And so I really do believe that. About three years ago, yeah, I went to grad school, finished grad school in 2018, and then decided and became licensed in 2019 as what's called an LPCA or associate, where you go under supervision and you get client hours and completed all that work June of this year. So I'm official. What was your motivation? That's a lot of work. Part of me, back in 2015, I was wrestling with getting better with what I do here. I've been doing pastoral counseling probably over 40 years. 
And I thought, you know, I want to sharpen my tools. And Pastor Chip was instrumental for me in that we had a talk. I looked at different schools and looked at Liberty University, and they had pastoral care. But they also had the clinical or the professional. And then Chip challenged me, and I prayed about it, took a step in faith, and uh, went that route. Because my heart, brother, boils down to the specific opportunity of seeing people get healed, but also seeing people be free and who God's called them to be. Uh, so— now, having been in pastoral care for decades, minus the scientific licensing of a, of a therapist, and now you have that massive tool in your tool belt, what kind of words of, of caution would you give pastors who are not licensed in this way to kind of grapple with what their limitations are when it comes to helping people in pastoral care? You know, that's a great question, Pastor Joey. I, I, I look at the perspective, first of all, the individual that's coming to see you, or it's a couple or maybe even a family, what are they coming in for? Typically, when you come to see a pastor, it's, I need some wisdom, I need some biblical truth, I need for you just to hear me. You know, I'm struggling here. I need your support. I need prayer support. Many times, pastors hopefully are, are really have a strong foundation in those arenas, and yet they see that people are struggling and dealing with situations. If they if they can come to the reality that they're going to only take them so far, and that deals not only with what they've been trained or how the information they have, for a pastor to say, you know, I can only take you so far, and really, and here's the heart of it: it's not about them; it's about helping the person sit in front of you. That's the priority. You know, I even say in my practice that if I can't help you, I'm going to find somebody who can, you know, because and that's what's important. So I think every pastor ought to be trained basically on how to counsel folks. But that's hearing their story, hearing the truth and helping them take the next step because you don't see again as a long term. How would you say the church is doing in general with just paying more attention to mental health? I think it's bubbling to the top right now. And it's because it's what's happening across our country in this world. And I think they're starting to recognize it. I will tell you the, the, the sad, challenging part is many of them have been fearful because they don't understand it. They don't, and in one sense, it could be wisdom not to get into a field or even pursue something you know anything about. But many of the people that are really blowing that trumpet, so to speak, have been personally touched by a situation. You know, Rick Warren, where his, you know, one of his sons took, a, took his life. You know, that impacted him and his bride. And so they see mental health, emotional health, a priority not only with their staff, but even other pastors are helping other people. It's, it's a matter of what you've been touched by, encouraged by. But also, you know, I know here at Seacoast, I love Pastor Josh and the leadership team have taken upon themselves to put a high premium on the emotional and mental well-being of our staff. You know, from the you know, Pastor Chip and I have availability to helping folks to, you know, referring out to other professionals. It's something that's I think is exciting because to be able to, and to quote Pastor Chip, I love it, the mission of the church and the mental health community ought to be a merging relationship, you know, continue moving forward. It's a win-win deal. So the moment of truth, January 2023 is rolling around. And if someone said, Pastor Mike, as a licensed therapist and someone who cares about me as a pastor, if I concentrated on only three things, what would those three things be for the new year? Wow. How long do we have, brother? <laughs> uh, 15 seconds. Go. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I think it I think it's first of all developing a healthy relationship with the Lord, and that's just not a spiritual go-to, so to speak. I mean, it's seeing that they have that relationship which ties into their identity. Who are they? Who has God called them to be? And developing that to the fullness. Because I think many people are stuck right now because they've been hurt, they've been wounded, whether it's trauma growing up or the father's wound or even some, not necessarily physical abuse, even though it's there, but the emotional, mental. And then you look at couples who are stuck because of their mental and emotional well-being. So the willingness to, to, first of all, have that relationship with the Lord and, and to develop that identity and who God's called them to be, and then to go into those areas that if they're struggling, get help. You know, if they're not sure where to go, Let's talk about it. Let's don't stuff it and uh, process it and, and, and really get some practical tools, but also encouragement to where they are and taking that next risky step. Yeah. You want to go down the list? You know, I think, first of all, is taking care of your physical self, being able to eat healthy, exercise, getting the sleep you need, but also 
tying into the spiritual, mental, emotional well, that, that when you are dealing with scenarios that are challenging, that you're taking the time to be gentle with yourself, looking at yourself where there's a need, and be able to develop that in a healthy way. What does that look like to be gentle with yourself? I, I think I think because, you know, part of the motivation is that many people have been told a lot of lies. You never amount to anything. You never measure up. You never make the cut. And so they're pretty hard on themselves because of what they heard when they were growing up. I think sometimes we allow even others outside of our family or our family of origin, I like to call it, who influence us. People that we respect and looked up to it. We're trying to prove ourselves. We're trying to be somebody, which ties in back to the identity, which brings into the perspective of an insecurity. Most people today are struggling with an insecure self. They don't, they don't like themselves. They don't feel good about themselves. So they're pretty hard on themselves. But in you're going through the traumatic situation or a challenging time or grief, say, hey, you know what? One day at a time. You know, God made me in his image. And Genesis tells us, God loves me. God likes me. And he's inviting me to do the same. I like to ask folks all the time, Joey, Pastor Joey, can you look in the mirror tonight and you say, hey, I like who I see. Who you are, who God made me. Again, back to the identity. So to have that gentleness and saying, hey, you really matter. You're important to the kingdom and you have a lot to give. Jesus says the the two greatest commandments, love God and then love others Mm -hmm. as you love yourself. And that last part, we just bypass. I mean, I I didn't pay attention to that until probably five years ago. And, And I had to start evaluating what does that look like? How do I love myself? <laughs> yeah. And and, and it's, I know there's a fine line between being arrogant and proud. And, you know, we're not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about having a holy confidence. Wow. You know, I made a mistake today. But you know what? There's a tomorrow. The whole forgiveness deal where people have been hurt you and wounded you. But have you forgiven yourself because of that? Yeah. That's being gentle. You know, I'm saying, you know what? I blew it. I made a mistake. But you know what? That's not going to define me. I'm going to keep moving forward. Because there's always another day. There's always another opportunity to make a difference. Keep looking forward. Don't look at the past. Oh, yeah. And learn from the past. Yeah, that's a big thing too, brother. People, a lot of times, they like to hang out in the past. And they're willing to to learn from it, and let's move forward. Second thing is the anxiety. When people are, anxiety is probably, that and depression are probably the two biggest areas people are dealing with today in the mental and emotional arena. So the willingness to recognize the anxiety is just, the surface, what's underneath that's causing that, what triggered that, what challenged you to have those feelings and to be able to, first of all, process it with the Lord. But then secondly, you might need somebody else to sit down with. And that's where a professional is so important. Yeah. And I even think that some need to just slow down and maybe even take into consideration Mm -hmm. that they could be struggling with anxiety. And what does that look like? Because, you know, my history Mm -hmm. of struggling with depression, I would tell people, well, I don't really suffer from anxiety. And now I've learned so much about anxiety. And for me, the two go hand in hand. I mean, just one feeds the other. And I think for me, it it seems as if once the anxiety is compounded enough, then it can set into depression. No, and, and, and what what triggered that? What where is that coming from? I mean, I I dig into that, and I also dig in as you allow yourself to fall into that perspective. You're going to fall into dysfunctional thinking, and when that thinking is coming, it's going to affect not only your process of thinking, how I feel about what I think about myself. You know, I'm, I'm a good person or no, I'm a bad person or I didn't measure up. But then the emotion kicks in. I get fearful. I get angry. I get sad. Those are all real. But then as you see the mental and emotional perspective, it's going to impact your behavior. How you live that out every day, how you treat people because of that trigger. So what we want to do is recognize it and we want to dispute it. We want to build a different narrative. We want to reframe it, so to speak. I just gave you some therapy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's why we're recording. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This whole episode is just for me. I'm getting free therapy from. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm so glad. I'm so glad you finally recognized it. And I don't, I won't charge you either. So I just. All right. Last but not least, I, I love this on monitoring your environment. And I'd love to hear more on, on what you're thinking here. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I love what Pastor Gray came about a few years ago when he said, guys, no longer we're taking a day off. We're taking a Sabbath rest. So where is that putting you in that place where you're getting rest, that you're being comfortable to be able to take that time, especially if you've been hurt, to heal? 
And that could be with family or friends. could be going to a Citadel baseball game like I used to do and getting to dugout and be a little boy again with those college athletes. You're surrounding yourself with a scenario that's helping you to continue to grow and to heal and to be free from those areas that you struggle with. Isolation can be very difficult, especially when you're struggling. But I will say it's good to have one-on-one time, not only with the Lord, but with yourself to relax and rest, whatever, again, is going to revitalize you, that's going to strengthen you. But you're surrounding you with people that are for you, that are there for you, and, and also will hold you accountable. I mean, I consider for days some of the brothers I hang out with, and I mean, they are not only friends, but they're brothers. And they're there for me, and I'm there for them. The same with my bride, Cindy, and my family. So that environment is huge. And then in your experience with pastoral care and therapy, is it pretty normal for people not to have healthy relationships in their lives? Oh, no question. No question. It's toxic. You know, they, they some, of them, some of them don't know what it means. They don't know what it looks like. Again, you've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. So if I've been hurt, I may not be a good person to be around if I don't allow myself to get over that and heal. And they don't, they don't, sometimes, I don't want to say it this way in one sense, but it's true that I, I don't know anybody. I only know what I know. I don't know, I don't, what does what a healthy relationship look like? I mean, even when I sit with the couples I sit with, oh my goodness, I meet with a therapist once a month for me. And it's so freeing and refreshing just to unpack with Bob. And he is the real deal. I just love the guy and really honor him for who he is. So we need that support and look for that opportunity to find the real deal. Well, Pastor Mike, I appreciate it very much. You undeniably have a huge pastor's heart and now throwing in this professional science, man, you're a dangerous man. <laughs> well, I give, I will tell you this, Pastor Joey, one thing after I finished all this, you know, one thing for sure, I don't know a daggum thing. <laughs> but I'm hungry. And as you take the word becoming a Christ follower, the word disciple means learner. Brother, I could sit here right now for the next, again, or luncheon and talk to you about some of the stuff that I am learning. Some of the training I even had a couple about a week ago. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited about what the future holds with these opportunities that I'm learning and being a part of. And especially a part of this team, great team. And honored to sit with you today. And I appreciate all you're doing as well, brother. What a joy. I was curious, you know, before we get into some possible changes for people to make, I was wondering, like, post-Christmas, people have spent time with their family, and obviously, there's a lot of what we would call, I guess, family hurt and family wounds that may be revisited. And even just the post-Christmas, my life isn't where I would like for it to be, and it's a big reminder when I'm around family. Is this is this a time post-Christmas? Is, is it a time? where people's mental health takes a downward spiral? Yeah, we actually see the downward spiral start in the fall, and then it goes down, 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 down. Oh, wow. It, does that have anything to do with the weather? My my psychiatrist has, like, sometimes will we'll plan on me going down in my medication a little bit, and there's been times where he's just like, let's wait till the summer, uh, you know, even in Charleston. but I know this sounds really weird, and I don't understand it, but there's something about the changing of seasons. Yeah. That always messes people up. Even like say out here in Colorado, fall's beautiful here, but that's when I see the depression really, really start. And then it builds and builds. And it's at record levels, I will say right now, with all that's been going on, I assume I've had more suicides than I've ever kind of all around me than I've ever experienced as a person and as a therapist. But then something does happen in January where people do come in or that's kind of a lull over the holidays over Christmas. And then they come back into January. And I think that is related to, okay, let's start. Kids are back in school. I've got some work to do. It feels like a more hopeful place of wanting to come in and do work rather than like right now it's they're coming in in despair and they're barely functioning. Gotcha. If if everyone woke up to how important and effective getting therapy could be, we probably don't have enough therapists, right? <laughs> no, we do. I mean, at least, I don't know what it's like for, in your area, but we for sure don't have enough therapists here. And then that's, that's even if we're counting in the therapists who aren't really trained well enough to actually keep people safe and alive. Uh, so we're, we're just, we're, it, it's, it's truly a crisis. Yeah. Wow. 
Goodness gracious. I hate hearing that. I know how it feels. That is for sure. I know how that feels. Well, we've got five therapists who are going to be on this episode, one of them being you, and I'm basically asking them all the same question. If there were three things, you could only recommend three things to, to all of us as far as adjustments to make in the new year or things to add to our lives, things to get out of our lives, what would be the three things that you would encourage people to focus on? Yeah, I'm going to actually connect this a little bit to the conversation we were just having. Mm -hmm. I think I would always say these things, but it feels critical right now. Um, And I'm just going to kind of focus on the idea of relationships because one, we know um, what a protective factor for mental health um, and therefore prevention against suicide relationships, close connected relationships are. And I also am just so alarmed by how people kind of went into the isolation of COVID and then never came out. I don't think I've ever seen people more isolated, more lonely than I have right now. And how far does, how, how deep does that go, Elizabeth, as far as isolation? Because I, I don't really have a reference point for that. Like I've always had good friends or good church community. What, what does true isolation look like? Worst cases I see are ones that there are people who aren't connected to a church or in, in any sort of way. So being part of a church is definitely a protective factor for isolation, right? Because there is a place to go and find people. And so these are people who don't, there's no organization they're connected to. There's no faith community that's pursuing them. And so it's either that they actually have no friends and, and, and no partner and no anything, or they are married and it's a very distressed relationship and it's actually more painful than if they were on their own. So, and, and we'll put this in the show notes. You actually did a, a TED talk on the importance of relationships and how it literally can add years to your life. So, yeah, you know, we need to actually meet the people that we're sitting next to at church. We need to be part of small groups. We need to knock on the door of the neighbor, you know, our next door neighbor and invite them over for whatever. That's my number one is taking the actual steps. And if there's a block to that, I'm just getting curious about that with a therapist, with a, with yourself. I have been in such low places where, I mean, it was crisis mode and, and literally being around anyone or anything just wasn't helpful. But no matter what, I have experienced so many times not wanting to be around people, but was kind of forced in a situation to where I was around people or maybe forced myself, there hasn't ever been a time there wasn't something naturally in me that wasn't relieved. Like every single time, whether I liked it or not, there was some sort of release inside that I just did not expect having hung out with someone. Absolutely. Because depression lies to you, right? Depression tells you that you want to be by yourself and you need to be by yourself. And I I think that conversely, I think about pursuing those people like kind of how you're describing yourself. Like recently I I reached out to a friend who I know is struggling with depression and asked her to go for a walk. And she said, no, she was too busy. And I said, is that the depression speaking or what is actually going on? You know, the trying again, like it sounds like people did with you. Right. Right. Sorry, I'm coming over anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of, and not, not expecting anything really out of the person suffering, but just not letting them be by themselves. I, so often we just think, oh, I'm going to give them space. And I am here to say, people do not need space. That is not how we were created. They may say they want it, act like they want it, but they need close connection. Now, when you say space, are you meaning long-term? There's definitely been times where I have felt, and maybe this is part depression and being an introvert, mm-hmm. but I just I just have to disconnect from everyone for a few hours. Not like this long-term, day after day after day after day, but... Yeah, I, I, I was primarily talking not long-term-ish, Yeah, not day, a couple of days, maybe okay. But beyond that, yeah. not so much. Yeah. I love it. Hey, I need some space. No, you don't need space. I love it. I talked to a therapist and that's what she said. So <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been known to say that to friends a few times. They kind of hate me for it. Yeah. So allowing, just pursuing and allowing yourself to be pursued saying, yes, I see at least 
for, for me, that sense of just even making the relationships is harder for men. I mean, I know my husband has struggled for men to be responsive in the same way that when he says, hey, let's go grab a drink or whatever. The second piece of that is that, you know, a lot of us have a lot of people in our life, um, especially if we're involved in a church, there can be a million things that we're doing, but that no one actually knows us. I think part two of that is the, the idea of pursuing vulnerability. And that is really just about taking the risk to share the worst parts of yourself with the people in your life. You will get burnt because you'll learn pretty quickly who can tolerate that and who can't. But there are people out there who can tolerate that because there can't, without the vulnerability, there's not real connection. And without real connection, you're not really maintaining a relationship and you're not really just kind of living out the way we're created to be. And it's hard because you kind of have to start, like everybody in one is kind of responsible for starting it themselves, right? Saying, okay, I'm going to step out and I'm going to try something. I'm going to call my, my mom friend and tell her that I screamed bloody murder at my children today. That's a big one that my friends and I will share with each other. The things that we, you know, the ways we mess up as parents. Yeah. Or I'm, de- I'm doubting this about God. And can you be in that with me? Or I'm depressed. Or, you know, take, take whatever it is. Or even just taking tiny steps. What's happening there with vulnerability as far as the benefits? Is it, is it that if we aren't willing to do that, does that mean that deep down inside we haven't accepted ourselves? Is that a sign of a, of a problem of our lack of acceptance? Yeah. Oh, there's so many layers to that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always think about the relationship as horizontal and vertical and that they feed into each other. So I think that the fear around vulnerability can be one, you've never experienced it, which then means you're not going to be able to experience it with God. Like you need, it needs to go both ways. The vulnerability needs to go vertically and horizontally, right? And, and I do think sometimes it's about experience, like you haven't had the experience of it. No one's done it to you. You've never tried it. You've never learned that it's safe. And, or, like tied to what you were just saying, you just think you're so, that your insides are so bad that if someone knew, they wouldn't love you. And then because you've never told anybody and have them then love you, it just reinforces itself, right? And you can't, and you cannot find connection without vulnerability. There's nothing to connect to. Talking about what you had for breakfast does not satisfy our souls. Right. Have people in your life, be vulnerable with them. And the third one, this is the hardest one, I think. And it's one that I'm kind of, I'm actually leading a TEDx salon on this for college students because I care about this so much. It's kind of a spinoff from my talk, like practicing conflict. So I think this is a natural progression. You're vulnerable. You share what's actually happening inside of you. At some point, you're going to have conflict with the people that you love, right? Because you're not pretending. And we are bad at conflict. It scares us, right? And it really just takes practice. But I think the part that I care about more is learning how to say, I'm sorry, and learning how to prepare. We as Christians, we should do that better than anyone, right? We know it's already been taken care of. It's already been separated from us. Um, but I actually don't really notice a huge difference by and large between Christians and non-Christians in their ability to repair. And so, and, and just to clarify, repair is a therapist term for going to the person, asking how you hurt them, really feeling their pain with them, validating it, even if you don't agree with the comp, with the, with the, like what the fight was actually about and caring deeply about the way that they were hurt and offering that to to someone. I've just learned that we don't know how to say I'm sorry. We say I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but you really made me mad. That's what my kids always do. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you were really mean to me. That's not an apology, and that will not lead to repair right. because there's actually not ownership there. And so, I, for on this piece, I think it's partially just about knowing like what are the actual pieces to really saying you're sorry and owning the way you've hurt the people you love, big or small, right? snapped at them from a huge, all the way up to big betrayal. But it's also just about trying it. And man, does our pride, I, for me, it's just so hard. It is so hard to go in and say, I really messed up and there's no, there's no excuse for it. And it seems like a a part of this too would be the person who was hurt 
there may be a time in which the other person doesn't even realize. And I know a lot of people who would just go about their business carrying that hurt when the person that hurt them would want to know and apologize, but instead that person just keeps it to themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's a huge, and that's back to the, we hate the conflict. We don't want to do it. We just hope we'll get over it or we think we should get over it. And really it's blocking connection. It is profoundly detrimental to relationships. And, and there's no real easy answer with about this other than than trying. Yeah. Practicing. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's so new year's resolution, but just being like, I, the next person where my feelings are hurt, I'm going to tell them, but I'm going to do it with vulnerability. Leading back to the other one, I'm going to say that really hurt. It made me feel really insecure. It made me wonder if you actually care about me as a person, not you were a jerk when you said this. Right. When do we look at a conflict with someone? How do we arrive at the conclusion that connection with this particular person is more harmful and forgive from afar. And that's a tough one to navigate when you're not sure. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, you don't want to give up a friend. And at the same time, you're like, I don't know if this friendship's good for me. Yeah, it is so hard. I want to just validate that. (laughs) I err on the side of taking the risk. Some of this depends on our background and our trauma and what we can tolerate. But I are on the side of like, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to show up with vulnerability and they may hurt me and then I'll know. Yeah. But I don't want to walk away until I try to show up with vulnerability. Now, that's like trying the first time. Do you know what I mean? There's like years of you trying to be vulnerable and getting slapped in the face. It's time to go. And, And then that's, that is more of a heart between you and the Lord kind of thing. Yeah. As a therapist, how do you care about people without carrying all the stuff that you hear and let it consume your thoughts throughout the day? Is it just a decision that you make that, hey, once someone walks out of the door, you'll take your notes, you'll think about the next session, but you can't carry that with you. Is that a decision that you have to make every day? I think early on I did. You made that decision or you carried it? Oh, good. Both. Gotcha. (laughs) Right. Early on, it was too much. I had to like kind of go through a ritual. With years of experience, though, I do carry it with me. I never stop thinking about my clients, I'll be honest. But it doesn't, it's like I've built the muscles, like I've got, and I can. And it doesn't feel like it distracts me or consumes me or makes me anxious or all those kinds of things. Like in my mind, carrying a load of other people is a gift as long as it's not leading to those things that I just said. And honestly, despite, especially right now, the the overwhelming pain that is sitting in front of me daily, because I am seeing people grow and change, that also helps a whole lot. There's always hope. And the hope even in the midst of like devastating loss makes a big difference. Yeah. Well, I haven't said this to the rest of the therapists and I should have. So I'll say it to you and it applies to all of them. Thank you for taking care of people. I mean, that's a, it's a tough job, but I don't know where I'd be without my therapist. So I appreciate what all of y'all do. And uh, thanks for giving us some wisdom here on this podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for saying that um, and seeing it. It actually, it matters a lot. I appreciate that. Awesome. There's a link in the show notes to our podcast Facebook page where we talk about these episodes and share some behind-the-scenes information, including guests we're booking. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.